so that we can focus on your word and we can be transformed by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we'd love to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids time. They can go out the back there. Uh, Miss Logan is right out there at the side door here. If you have a middle school age kid, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th in that window, uh, Mr. Greg has those guys and girls in the back, and we love for them to be a part of what we have going on uh, as well. As we've kind of repicked up our habit of taking time once a month um, directly following communion, which is the, the, we celebrate the first Sunday of every month, and taking a moment together as a community and sort of just going before the Lord in prayer. And what we've done and what we used to do all many years ago, we kind of got out of the habit of doing and have recently picked back up, is just taking some time together as a community and offering up needs that we have as a community to the Lord, things that may be going on we'd like to just pray for or ask prayer for, um, or just to celebrate things that God has done in your life that you just want to say, hey God, we're just so grateful and we're really honored and so we just want to lift these things up. So what we do is we just take an opportunity and if you have something, just kind of shout it out or raise your hand and I'll jot it down and then I'll pray for all those things together and then we will open up our time in the Word. And so I think Mr. Greeno's got something right here. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so Tim was asking that we remember and pray for those that have been impacted by Hurricane Michael um, and all through that path and destruction and that the church is rising up well and all of those things and that we would can continue to pray for those families and all those that are impacted. Absolutely. What else do we have going on this morning that we would like to lift up before the Lord? Absolutely. Gary, we'd like to pray for the sick among us, those of us that are dealing with just illness and long-term illness, things that are, are plaguing and going on. Absolutely. What else do we have this morning that we'll be able to lift up and take before the Lord? Anybody else? Something? Good. Absolutely. Ryan has asked us to pray and thank God for his provision, for work, for just being a God who does immeasurably more. Absolutely, man. Yes, Miss Linda? Amen. Thank you. So uh, everybody heard Miss Linda wants to pray for church and all those involved and she's moving into a new place which we're excited about for her and I know she's excited about and her new landlord apparently is here which we're excited about as well. Anybody that knows, oh there she is, everybody that, <laughs> everybody that knows Miss Linda is, uh, there you go, okay, in case we missed you. I don't know if y'all met Linda, our head usher, but she is, uh, she is in charge and so we are, uh, we're really blessed that you guys are here this morning. Uh, Linda will continue to pray that all that works out just in God's perfect timing. What else can we lift up and pray for this morning? Anybody have anything? Yes, sir. So you have a nephew that accepted Christ Wednesday morning. It's exciting, man. It's awesome. Very cool. This is Zach's nephew. Awesome, brother. That's, that's fantastic. Anything else we want to lift up before the Lord together?
Yes, ma'am. Sherry asked that we would pray for all those across the globe that are displaced, um, that are being impacted or affected by just any of the tons of things that are going on in this world. She has an amazing heart for the, the world and the nations, and so we want to continue to remember them as God moves and works around the world. That's a great. Anything else this morning? Yes, sir. Absolutely. So Kevin and Babs, we've had a chance to meet them. They, they joined our community here pretty recently in the past uh, new member class, but they've been coming for a little while. One of the things that is close to their heart, which they've mentioned to me and talked about, is developing a full kind of marriage ministry here at the church to help develop and strengthen marriages, give folks that have been married for a day or 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, opportunities to re-engage their marriage, build those strong biblical principles and ties. Uh, as he mentioned, Satan would love to attack marriages from the inside out, and so they have a real heart for developing that, and hopefully in the near future, we're going to be able to see some of those opportunities. So, but I do think even now, as we pray that God would prepare a window and opportunity and just for marriages, because the truth is, in a community like ours that's made up of this many people, there are marriages in here that are on the edge, and uh, as much as we don't ever want to admit it or say it out loud, you know, we walk in here holding hands, oftentimes covering up very difficult, very real struggles, and so... We want to be a community that's praying for authenticity and transparency and vulnerability as we ask the Lord to restore and build and strengthen marriages in our community. Thank you for that. Anything else we can lift up this morning? Yes, sir. Absolutely. As you guys know, for the past few weeks, we've been working to develop a plan and really a heart for why uh, we want to expand and build out our space, and so we do as a church, um, the resources, we don't stockpile cash, we don't have accounts in the Caymans or anything like that, we just literally, as stuff comes in, it goes out, and so we need the Lord to be really faithful in, in just moving this community as, as one to give and supply the resources that we need to meet the growing needs of our, our community. Thank you for that, Tim, I appreciate it. Let's take a minute, let's go before the Lord, and, and the great thing about God, well, there's just so many great things about God, but one of the great things about God is that his kind of ability is not limited to just hearing me as we pray, but he, he can literally pray and hear all the prayers of our heart. He knows the things that you're thinking before you even utter them, and so as I lift up these things, I encourage you to just pray along with me, other things that the Lord has pressed on your heart, and we collectively will go before the Lord with these things and countless others as we just Go before our God with the needs of this community. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, I do thank you for the opportunity to gather here. I thank you for all the things that are going on that we are <clears throat> wrestling with, the tensions, the struggles, the fears, the failures, Lord, the lives that are marked by people in this building. That, God, we came in here and not all of us were a picture-perfect kind of look at health, both spiritually or emotionally or physically. Or, Lord, we bring all kinds of things. And the amazing thing about you is that you meet us in the middle of our failure. And so, God, I thank you that no matter what we brought this morning, it is not too big for you. 
So Lord, we come before you with these things and countless, countless others that are on our heart as a community. As Tim mentioned, we lift up all those that are affected by Hurricane Michael, Father, for those that have been affected in the wake of its kind of path, but those that are displaced without power this morning, for churches that are in that area that are trying to reach and save and serve. Lord, for those that are gathering in worship this morning with no power. God, for those families that have no food or that have no place to call home, God, we pray that that the church would rise up and would serve and the church would be the expression of your hands and feet and that, God, you would do amazing works. Lord, we pray for those of us in here that are facing illness, but we have men and women in our community that are facing horrible, difficult, awful things that are dealing with cancers and struggles and heart illnesses. Lord, we are those of us in here that are just dealing with chronic pain. Lord, those of us in here that are dealing with just temporary sickness. Um, God, that we are having problems with our physical bodies. Lord, we know that these bodies are temporary and there will be a day where there will be no more pain or no more suffering or no more tears. But until that day, Lord, we have this thing, this body, and we ask that you would be a God that heals, a God that comforts, and a God that binds up. Lord, we thank you for Ryan, and we again echo his gratitude for things like work, God, for provision, for the way that you never fail us nor forsake us that we can call upon your name and as you tell us, you will give us immeasurably more than we need or ask for. And so, Lord, we echo that thanks and that cry this morning. Lord, we pray alongside with Linda. We're excited about the opportunity she has for a new place. God, we thank you that you continue to give us a community that cares about each other. We pray that you would strengthen her in her move and that, God, she would be a great witness for Christ among new neighbors. We pray that. Lord, we rejoice with the Dunnigans as they celebrate with Zach's nephew who accepts Jesus, that he is now part of this incredible universal family of believers that spans ages and geographies and time, and that, Lord, it should be the plague of all of our hearts to see our family and our friends and our neighbors come to know Christ. That we'll be driven as a church and as a people and as individuals to want to share the gospel with everyone that we come in contact with. Lord, we thank you, Sherry, for her heart for the world. God, we pray that you would give us as a church a heart for the world. Those around the globe that are displaced by all kinds of awful things that are refugees, that are scattered, that are moved, that are plagued by wars and famines. Lord, we're reminded that we have missionaries all over this globe, that even as a church, we support these missionaries. We have the McBrayers who are out in France. Lord, we, we remember them. We have a group of us that are gathered now that are even in Thailand on a, on a mission trip, that Tom and Ruth Ann are over there with Reagan, David. Lord, we have friends that were just starting to support the Deermans who are headed to Cairo, Egypt, to take the gospel to places that aren't there. We have the Kitsmans that are in Southeast Asia. Lord, we have people that are pressed up and down the college campuses from Norman all the way out to Duke. Lord, we have those in New York City that we support that are taking the gospel to the greatest mission field in the world, which is our college campuses. Those kids that work with Crusade. God, we're grateful for our friends in China. Father, for our friends that are left in Guatemala, where Brandon and Jenny have had such a vital impact. We'll remember that we are a church with a global heart. And we pray for those around the world. Lord, we echo Kevin and Bab's prayer for marriages in the church. That those of us that are married, Lord, that it's a great great opportunity for the enemy to destroy lives. And we pray for strength in marriages. Pray that we would be a church that would invest in those. But those of us that are here this morning whose marriages are less than what we dreamed of, um, that are shaky, 
that are unsteady, that are on the verge of collapse, or that maybe you're just a cover-up for deeper things. We pray that you would begin a work here that could restore those foundations, Lord, that we could build upon this incredible picture of unity and love that you have laid out in Scripture of what marriage should look like. We pray that as that works, you would open up doors for them to help us establish a ministry here that could build marriages. Lord, we're grateful, we're reminded, as Tim mentioned, that we're in the process of trying to think about how to grow correctly as a church. We turn and submit all of our plans and thoughts over to you. You are the head of this church. It is not an individual, it is not a group, it is you. You are Christ the head. God, and we pray that you would give us wisdom and vision and that you would meet all the financial needs that we have to follow you. That when you say go, we go. When you say stop, we stop. When you say anything, Lord, we would submit to you. God, I'm grateful this is the community we get to be a part of. For the hundreds upon hundreds of other prayers that were not mentioned, for the things that we're afraid to say out loud, for the things that we did last night or two days ago, for our deepest fears and shortcomings and sins, Lord, you are God and you are big. And as we gather, Lord, I pray that you would just pierce our hearts together, that we might be able to release control to you, surrendering all that we have at the feet of the one who is in all and through all and above all, Jesus. God, hear our cries. We close our time in prayer. We transition to your word that you would move our hearts and that you would remind us that what matters to you should matter to us. And we ask this in the risen and perfect and holy name of Jesus. Amen. So thank you. We try and do that each month. It's nothing fancy. It's just a reminder and a way for us as a community to stay connected, um, to open up our hearts, to live a little bit of vulnerability, and to just go before the Lord together. Prayer is an important part of our community life. So for those of you that are here for the first time, welcome. We've been almost... A year and a half, pushing two years into the Gospel of John. We have labored through every verse and every line. It's been an incredible journey. We took a little break a few weeks ago to take a different kind of picture and look because the Lord has brought us to a new place. Um, those of you that haven't been here for a while, maybe you missed the past two weeks, a quick kind of recap of all this is that it's been an incredible three years that we have now been in this new space. We're a young community, we're new, we've kind of had multiple sort of phases of growth and life, and we've had three different locations that we've met in over the years. And this is our third location, and in this time of this past three years, God has grown us in some really amazing ways. Well, not only have he grown in terms of just size and just sheer numbers, God has grown us in terms of our maturity, our desire to truly know him, what discipleship and community looks like. He's changed those definitions for us. He's done some pretty amazing things. We have grown in size, just in terms of sheer size. 40% of our average growth we've grown in the past three years. But really where we're seeing remarkable growth is in our children. We are having an unbelievable number of children. We have grown 121% when it comes to kids. Um, it's insane. We average 50 children on a Sunday morning. Um, which is really, really, really a lot. Um, and what's amazing is we have families that are having multiple children, which means they're, they're committed to this community. If you walk outside and Brandon has this great new map up on the wall and you wonder where people in our community are from, you can kind of get a picture that we are scattered all over this city. And that means people drive to here. They're committed enough to this community, to what life looks like here, to drive from wherever they are. People drive from Yukon, from Edmond, from uh, Choctaw, all to be in this place where they're putting their families. 
And all along, I've been committed to the Lord and basically saying, God, however you want to grow this church, that's what we want. I'm, I'm not looking for a, a great strategy in which we read strategic growth church books or whatever on nine steps to achieve a thousand members in two campuses or whatever. We have tossed all that stuff out. We've simply said, Lord, whatever you want, we will do. And we've been committed to really three things in this whole process. And I've told you this, and they look different over time, but they're basically the same three principles, right? And those three principles I've been telling you each week were, were basically this, that we wanted to live and act in a way in which God receives the glory, period, forever. We're not interested in pats on the back. We're not interested in saying, hey, look, we're growing, or God is doing this, or you're a great this. We want Jesus to get all the glory for everything, period. Everything that we do is for his glory. The second thing is that we were committed to unabashedly preaching the gospel as we see it in the whole of Scripture without hesitation, period, and without reservation. So what we are committed to as a church is that we want you to fall in love with God's Word. So we are going to preach it and teach it as we see it in the whole of Scripture every time. I'm not going to craft things around scriptural ideas and tell you nine steps to better friendships. What you're going to hear when you come is you are going to engage God's word and we want you to fall in love with it. We're going to be unashamed in our teaching and preaching of the whole of scripture, Old and New Testament, as it points to the person of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we were deeply committed to from day one. And then finally, the last thing that we've been deeply committed to is that we are going to push back from all forms of manufactured community that tries to produce perfect looking people in perfect looking buildings for something that's a little bit more authentic, a little bit more complicated, a little bit more transparent, and a little bit more vulnerable. There are easier ways to make things look like we have them together. We're not interested. What we are interested in is existing in a way that you're known and that people know you and that you know them. And that we push for authentic community, whatever that looks like and however complicated that is. But that we're pushing back for making sure that everything that you look and see around here is perfect. There's no cords out of place. Everybody's dressed like they should be dressed. Everything We we are opting for authenticity. Not that any of that is essentially wrong, but that it's been our desire to always be that way. And it starts up here, which you will see from me simply as I teach of the things that God is teaching me. And if I can be transparent in the way that I teach my own failures and what God is teaching me, then maybe in the way that we think about community, that would be kind of contagious. And so we have opted to push back from this picture of the way things should be be to be a perfect representation so that you have no hiccups when you walk in the building to just being true and being authentic. Those three pieces of the puzzle have always been been there for us. So as we started thinking about growth, we started looking at these numbers and how kids were, what I was committed to is saying, God, I'm not interested in coming up with more space for the sake of space, right? If we're not growing in the ways that we've been committed to surrendering to you to grow in, then I don't want to be a part of it. I'm not going to preach sermons, my best sermons, so that we can raise money to put up more drywall. I'm not interested in that at all. But if God is growing us, I want to be really faithful that what we're doing not only is true, but it's honest and it's correct. And so this summer, I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about it. I mean, we've got all these kids, they're underfoot, we've got no volunteers, we have no space for them anymore. And yet we've got all this space, 2,000 square feet in the back here, that we could take. And we'd always kind of planned on, if the Lord wanted us to, to turn it into more space for kids or just classroom space during the the year or to actually develop a real full youth ministry. We have all kinds of dreams and ideas. And if we're going to do that, then I want to make sure that the things that we are committed to are still the things that we're committed to. And so I I spent a lot of time this summer praying and kind of thinking through it. And our elders spent a lot of time talking about it, just kind of make sure that what we were doing would be right and will be authentic, and will be true to what we believe the Lord was doing. And so what we decided to do was take a, a step back from John and just explore the things that should matter to us so that if we grow, 
spiritually, physically, whatever, we would do it correctly with the things that matter to the Lord mattering to us. And as I look at that, I came up with this sort of thought process in Scripture that there really are things that matter to God. And in the economy of heaven, I say the idea is the one always matters to the Lord. And so for the past two weeks, and now the third week, we've been looking at three distinct principles of things that matter to God that should matter to us. And the first one two weeks ago we looked at was that we should exist for the salvation, or we should exist for the glory of the one true God, which lines up with exactly what my heart has been all along for our community is that God would receive the glory and glory alone. And we talked as a community about what that looks like, that God gets the glory for everything. That everything we do and gather around is not done by the hands of people, but instead that God is glorified and exalted. And we really looked at that and what that played out two weeks ago. Last week we talked about the second principle, which is we exist for the nurture of the one universal church. That there is what but one church of which we are all as a, a part. As people that have surrendered our life to Jesus Christ, we are committed to the one and a part of the one universal church. And we talked about the principles of the universal church, right? Unity diversity, interdependence, and that every member has value and worth. That's what we explored last week. Because the church matters to the Lord. Jesus loved, planted, and established the church as the way to carry on his mission in the world. And our final piece of that puzzle, which we're going to look at today, is that we exist for the salvation of the one through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in the economy of heaven, the one, the individual, matters to the Lord. And because it matters to the Lord, it should matter to us. It should be what drives us, what pushes us, what makes us wake up. And there's a couple of really amazing pieces in there that I want you to see. So we're going to be in a really famous parable this morning in Luke chapter 15. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Luke 15. We're going to be in a famous parable that everybody's going to be familiar with and everyone's going to know about. And I'm going to kind of open it up to a different way of thinking or looking about it at it a little bit this morning as we explore this idea of if we are the church then the individual, the one, our goal should be that they come to know Jesus, that we exist so that the one may be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Uh, The parable of the lost or prodigal son, most of us are really familiar with the idea, and we're going to look at it this morning and see how it plays out into our identity as a community of Christ followers today. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to work through that parable together. Lord, I thank you for um, the opportunity to gather here just in prayer this morning. I thank you that you have given us a corporate heartbeat to pray together, that you have done all these amazing things over the years. And so, Lord, right now we just come before you with your word. We just ask you to teach us. Lord, we do not discover you. We do not come to the end of our place and all of a sudden just run into our next revelation of who God is. You have to reveal truth to us. You reveal yourself. We do not discover you. Our humanity does not lead to God. Our humanity leads to sin and destruction. But yet you are a God who reveals yourself. You take initiative with your creation. And so, God, we know that when we come to your word, we are not going to just discover truth on our own. And so we ask you to teach our hearts. We ask you to enlighten us, to open your word through the Holy Spirit and teach our hearts. To the things that we've heard all of our lives, we ask you to give them new meaning. We ask you to let us see them with new spiritual eyes. For the places that we need to be convicted, God, we ask that you would convict us individually. We ask that you would convict us corporately. We ask that you would 
speak to us through your word because we know that an encounter with your word is actually an encounter with you. Your word is alive, it is living and active. And we do not take this opportunity lightly. And when we open it, we are opening up to the very presence of God. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Something fresh or new or just a great reminder, whatever it is, just ask the Lord to teach your heart. We do this each week. We want you to pray for the people around you, whether it's your spouse or whether it's a neighbor or someone that you've never met. We just want you to to be in the habit of praying for other people. So just pray this morning that God would move in their life, even if you don't know them, have never seen them, even if you think that's a little odd, just pray that God would move in them this morning. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. You are a king eternal. We ask that you would teach us through your word this morning and that we might see you. <clears throat> we pray this in Jesus' holy, risen, and perfect name. Amen. All right, so this is going to hopefully be a very familiar parable. Hopefully you've heard this multiple times, and we're going to examine it as it kind of sheds a light on, I, I think, who we are called to be as a community, and as Christ followers. So hopefully these are not new things, but in turn they are um, re-examined things, if you will. So in Luke 15, um, we see Jesus teaching this sort of extended kind of teaching session to a crazy group of people. We know from the beginning in Luke 15, 1, that there are a whole bunch of people that are gathered to hear him, and they are sinners and they are tax collectors, and they are Pharisees. So tax collectors get their own category because they're thieves and everybody hates them. But sinners is a, co- a category which is usually there to refer to people who are openly engaged in behavior that was against the law of God. Prostitutes, thieves, whatever. And also included the category of people who were unclean. So those that the kind of community had outcast, maybe you have a skin condition or maybe you were, uh, you were handicapped on some level, maybe you were blind. They believed that because you had that ailment, you were sinful and God was punishing you. And so that sinner category had all kinds of people in it from the, those that have been morally broken and unfit, if you will, for those that were physically broken and unfit, for all those that the religious people would not come in contact with and tax collectors because they were double sinners. And then you had the Pharisees who were also there, all the religious elite, gathered in this space, listening to Jesus teach. It would have been quite, quite the scene, right? The broken, the destitute, then those in perfect religious clothing and robes that are righteous, all gathered in one space. The religious elite sort of standing in the back, just infuriated that Jesus is even giving time to these broken people. And Jesus teaches a series of parables, and they all have basically the same point in Luke 15. And that point is that the one, the individual, matters to the Lord, all right? The parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost son. Jesus over and over again establishes that he loves the person, people. No different in the parable of the lost son, except he does something really interesting, which we'll take a look at. So let's look at it together. Jesus continued to teach. He had just taught on the parable of the lost coin. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided up his property between them, and not long after, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living, and after he'd spent everything there, was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Yet here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy that he called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and have sinned against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a celebration. For the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came into the house, he heard the music, came to the house, he heard the music and the dancing, and he called one of the servants over and asked, what is going on? Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, and he was safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders. Never even, yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered all of your property on prostitutes, he comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours who was dead is alive again. He was lost and he was found. Hopefully it's a very familiar story. Hopefully it's one that you've heard bits and pieces of or read multiple times. Luke is the only one of the gospel authors that records it. And he records it in this series of teachings of the one. And it's a fascinating story, but you have to understand sort of the way Middle Eastern mentality worked to really grasp the picture. But what we understand from the story is that this father had two sons, at least that we know about. He's got an older son and he has a younger son. And in Middle Eastern society, in sort of that patriarchal culture, the father's word was law. Whether you were a son or a daughter or a wife or a servant, whatever the father said, you went with. If he said, we're leaving, everybody went. If he said, we're staying, everybody stayed. His word was sort of this authoritative law, if you will. It's just how that culture operated, right? So you've got a younger son and an older son. And the way this thing should play out is that when a father died or was on his deathbed, he would call his sons over. And on his deathbed, he would divide up his property. The older son would get a double portion of whatever that was, and the rest would be divvied out among the younger, younger sons. But it was always at the end of the father's life or on his deathbed where they would take the property and they would sell it, and that included land, cattle, cash, whatever. Oldest son gets a double portion. The others get divided amongst them. But what we see in this parable is that a younger son, who has no voice and no authority, comes to the father in an incredibly demeaning way, says, give me my share of, your inher- of my inheritance. Basically what he's saying to the father is, you're as good as dead to me. 
Because a father would never divide up his property unless he was on his deathbed or about to die. And then the the oldest son would get two shares. And then the younger son will get whatever his one share was. But the younger son comes to the father and he says, listen, you're essentially as good as dead to me. What I want you to do is sell off all of your stuff and give me my part now. Which is, I mean, disrespectful doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what it is. Essentially it's saying, I don't care about you. I wish you were dead. Give me what's mine now. And what the father would have to do is then he would not just give him a pile of cash. He would actually have to take his land take the double portion that would go to the older son and sell off the portion that would be the younger sons. Well, no father was going to do that. Most of those patriarchal men would have looked at that son and said, no, I'm actually disowning you for even asking, therefore, get out. But what's incredible is, of course, the father's response is not that, right? What does the father say? He says he takes his property and he divides it among them. So essentially what he does is he takes all that was going to be to the older son and he hangs on to it and he sells off the portion that would go to the younger son and he gives him the money. So he sells whatever this prominent landowner had, he sells it, takes the cash, and he gives it to the younger son. And it says the younger son at that point in time, right, got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. So this younger son is not coming back. He's not interested. He gathers all that he has, clothes, stuff, things, all this cash that the father had now given him. And it says that he sets off for a distant country, which means he's not going for a wild night in the city, right? He's actually not planning on returning. He is headed to a country over there, wherever that is. As far as he can get away from the family, he is going there with all of his things. He is that angry, that disenchanted, that mad at whatever the situation is, or that selfish, that he wants what's his, and he wants out, and he wants out now. And so it tells us that he took all of his stuff, his things, gathers them together, money the father gave him, heads off to a distant land where he squanders his wealth and wild living. Now, we have no idea what that means. We can only use our assumption. It's the older son that tells us later on. He's really mad, by the way, so we don't know how true his words are. But he says, look, your son squandered it with prostitutes, which is probably true, but we don't know. We just know it's wild living. So whatever runs through your mind, however much you could go through a fortune in a matter of time, he goes through it all. Squanders it in wild living. After he'd spent all of his money, though, something crazy happens, which tends to happen in the Middle East. A famine hits the land. Famines came all the time, and they came in big waves. Sometimes they were brought by the Lord. Sometimes they just happened, and God allowed them to happen. But a famine literally was usually tied to a drought, which means there was no food for anyone in the country or in the area. So to sort of add insult to injury, if you will, hey, I spent all my money on wild living, and now there's nobody in the country that can even help me out because everybody literally is starving. So here's the younger son, ran off to this distant land, spent all of his money on all the things you would spend your money on. Famine hits the land. There's no place to live, no money, no food, no help. The only thing that he can find is that he can hire himself out to a local farmer or landowner that has hired him to feed his pigs, right? And you understand that as a Jewish man, to feed pigs was about the most degrading job there was because they were unclean animals. You weren't even allowed to be near them, touch them, much less eat them. So yet here's a Jewish man uh, feeding pigs. And as he's feeding pigs, right, the story goes that he longed to fill his own belly with the pods, which is basically this pile of garbage that the pigs were eating. 
So what, what Jesus is showing us is sort of this place where this kid has come to. And I call him a kid because he's still a son to this father, where he's come to. Squandered it all, no food in the land, hired himself out, broken God's law by even being around these pigs, right? Still living in sin, still living in all of his desperation, starving literally to death. He even tells us that he's starving. He says, oh, how my father's servants eat better than this. Yet here I am starving to death. No one will give him anything. None of the other servants, not the landowner, they don't even let him eat the garbage. So he comes up with this plan. It says basically he comes to his senses, right? Which means he kind of, I think, comes to this revelation, revelation that he's broken. That there's no other options for him. Comes to this place and he basically says, look, my father's servants eat better than this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to travel back, as embarrassed as I may be. I'm going to approach my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. I do not deserve to be called your sons. But if you would have mercy on me, make me like a hired hand. Because he thinks, essentially, if I can get my father to have that tiny bit of compassion on me, then at least I won't die here. And that's what he does. That's his big plan. He says, I'm going to say that to him. So he sets off from this journey back from wherever that distant land is, however far that walk may have been, probably days, weeks, months, whatever, rehearsing that all along. I'm going to go back. I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I know he's rehearsed it. He's rehearsed it. He's rehearsed it. And you know how the story goes, right? As he's still a long way off, as he's distanced, as he's still over on the other side of the hill, the father who is outside working sees his son, has compassion on him, and runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. None of these things are things that distinguished Jewish fathers would do. They didn't show affection. None of them would run, much less have compassion on their child that is stolen from them, much less kiss them openly in public, hug them, celebrated. This father was embarrassed, right? But yet, we don't see that. If you think of God as a sort of sheriff God waiting to pounce on you for everything you've done wrong, this image certainly shatters that, right? That here's the father running out to the son, embracing him. So the son gets out his grand plan. He kind of maybe pushes the father away a little bit and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. It's almost as if the father doesn't even hear him. He turns to his servants and he says, quick, get a robe, put it on him. Get a ring, put it on his finger. Get sandals, put them on his feet. Get the fattened calf that we have been saving, like a bottle of champagne in the refrigerator for a special occasion, and kill it. Because we are going to celebrate, because the son of mine who was lost has now been found. Of course, all of those pieces, right, are pieces of acceptance. A robe was a sign of, 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 of almost of royalty, of, of sort of a welcome of hospitable guest. A ring was, a signet ring was a sign of family and prominence, meaning bring the ring meant go get the family crest and put it back on his finger. Sandals, servants were barefoot. Sandals were something that was given to a family. The fattened calf, like I mentioned, was something that was saved. They fed it special occasion and they made it so that when something happened that was great, they would slaughter it and celebrate together. All of those things are pieces of acceptance. Father ignores sort of the case and the the plan of the son, does all that. Party and dancing and all those things. Well, the older son, 
out in the field working, doing everything that he should be doing, not doing anything wrong, literally serving the Father, serving the land, doing what he does. He comes back in from the day's work. No one went out to get him. He comes back in and he sees the music and dancing. So nobody ran out to tell the, the older son all this is going on. He's working all day. He comes back in and he comes to the house and he can see the dancing and the music. And he looks at one of the servants and he says, what is happening? And the servant says, oh, you didn't hear? Your brother, well, he came home and your dad killed the calf for him. And they're having a party because he was lost and now he's found. And then, of course, Jesus tells us about the resentment of the older son. He won't go in. He's furious. He literally is so mad, he won't even go in. So what does the father do? The father leaves the party, goes outside to where the older son is. Father comes out. And the older brother is extremely angry. This is what he says to the father. He says, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed a single order. Yet you never gave me even a goat to celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, right, not my brother, this son of yours, meaning I've disowned him. This son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. He comes home and you give him the fattened calf. And then the father looks at him and he says, my son, meaning I love you. You are mine. You are my family. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours, right? We had to sell off the rest to give it to your younger brother. Everything I have is yours, meaning the father doesn't have anything left to give away. Every piece of property, everything that I own belongs to you. But we have to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because this brother of yours, he reverses it again. He says, no, he's your brother too. This brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So a lot of people have looked at this parable and said, you know what this is? It's a, it's a story about how much God loves the broken, and it's a rebuke against the Pharisees. The Pharisees are gathered in that room. There's the, the sinners and the tax collectors and those that are, are dabbling in whatever life kind of struggles are or shouldn't be doing or the morally bankrupt and broken like the tax collectors or prostitutes or whatever. It's the story of them and God saying, I love them and they're welcome. And it's a rebuke for the older brother that's standing on the outside saying, how can you not love what the father loves? But I actually don't really don't see that story that way. I don't think it's a rebuke of the Pharisees as much as it's a love story about how much God loves his creation. I don't think it's a strong rebuke. If you really look at it, it's actually a picture of the father's love both for the wandering and the lost and the sinful, and for the disenchanted, and the angry, and the religious perfect. It's the father saying, I love you both. The father runs out to greet the son, throws his arms around and kisses him. We see that, we celebrate that, rings and robes and sandals. Amazing, you were lost, but now you're found. But meanwhile, the older son is still kicking dirt around and angry and frustrated. And what does the father do? He does the exact same thing. He leaves the party and goes to where the older son was. He meets both the younger and the older right in the middle of their brokenness. He meets the younger brother in the middle of his shame, and he meets the older brother in the middle of his anger. But he goes out and he meets them both. And what's the message he tells them both? I love you. And he looks at the older son and he says, I love you. Everything I have is yours. 
This parable is actually a parable of God's relentless, amazing love for his creation. It's not so much a rebuke for the religious elite as a reminder to them that the God of the universe loves them. See, they didn't think they needed that. But what Jesus is showing them is that in your older brother kind of disenchanted ways, you are as desperate in need of the love of the father as the wandering son. The problem with the older brother is that he didn't think he needed it. The younger brother knew he did. But God's love was equally for both. The father loved both. One recognized their need and one did not. But the love the father had for both individuals never changed. It's a love story. It's a love story. And as I thought about all the things that we've been committed to, and our last sort of principal piece, which is that we exist for the salvation of the one, right, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't get, nor do, should we have the right to define who the one is. This story is a perfect example of how the Father loves the individual. He loves those that have never darkened the day of church in their life. Those that have squandered everything they've got. Those that have gathered here that are still living a life that nobody else knows about on the side. That's full of shame and anger and moral kind of brokenness. And those that have never left the church, has never had a wild night in their life, have still just sort of showing up every day in and out. And life still hasn't been the way they want it to be. And for everybody in between whether you identify with the older brother or the younger brother or somewhere along the path, God is relentlessly in love with the one. What I want you to understand, a couple of quick things. Parable tells us this, right? That the one in the economy of heaven, the one matters to the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean numbers shouldn't matter, but what it does mean is that numbers should never drive us. If the individual matters to the Lord, then it should matter to us. So if the one matters to God, then it should matter to us. We are trapped in a Christian subculture that tells us that the individual has no real place or purpose, but we should count the individual in numbers of hundreds or numbers of thousands or numbers of salvations or numbers of baptisms in order that we may compete in our Christian subcultural of relevancy by asking each other how many people go to your church. It's the number one question I get asked when I meet other pastors. I promise you. Oh, you pastors are awesome. That's great. Where are you guys? Well, I meet on 36th and Western. We've been doing that for a couple years. Really, How big are you guys? Every single time. Because it's our only way of establishing some kind of relevancy. How many campuses do you have? How many people are coming to worship? How many people got saved or baptized? It's not that those things aren't important. But in the economy of heaven, we neglect the one, and the one matters to the Lord, which means in a room full of a hundred people, there are a hundred beating hearts. In a room full of a thousand, there are a thousand people with names and stories, and every one of those matters to the Lord, and how we and how you and how I treat those is actually stewardship. We tend to think stewardship is what we do with our resources and our money. Stewardship is what we do with anything that God has given us. And every heartbeat that walks through those doors is something that the Lord has given us. And what matters to him should matter to us. Are we stewarding the heartbeats that God has placed in our lives? Both the ones that come through these doors and the ones that have been placed in your life. Your neighbor, your coworker, that one crazy lady that asks a bunch of questions. Right? That is a heartbeat that God has placed in your life. How are you stewarding that heartbeat? The one matters to God. 
And you know what typically happens? The one bothers us. The one is inconvenient for us. Now, if it fits within our perfect paradigm of time, I can give you 30 minutes over here, then it's okay. But if it doesn't fit within our perfect paradigm of time, the one is typically an inconvenience. The one is a bad return on investment, right? What if we go through an entire year and we raise $500,000 and all those things and we grow by one person? You know what the majority of the world would say that was? Failure. Terrible use of money, terrible use of resources, bad return on investment. And you know what? They wouldn't be wrong from that perspective. But from the economy of heaven, do you know what happens in these other parables when one sinner repents? You know the parable of the lost sheep? He goes and gets the one, throws it on his shoulders, and they have this incredible celebration. The son returns home. Luke 15.10 says that when one person is saved, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God. Which means the one, we go through a whole year, one person meets Jesus. You know what happened? Heaven erupts. And we're disappointed. You see the brokenness of the way the church thinks about itself? You know why that is? It's because we're hung up and competing with each other for relevancy. That's why I told you long ago, the only way that we could fail as a community is if we were disobedient to the Lord. It is the only way we could fail. If God wants to close up this shop, it is his to close up. Failure is only recognized as disobedience. In the economy of heaven, the one matters. And what matters to the Lord should matter to us. What that means is that the one, the individual, the steward at heart should matter to us. Every new face heartbeat name that walks in this building should move us now i could leave it there i could stop there and i could say that's where we end this thing it's the one it's about the one but by doing that i'll actually do you an incredible disservice because here's what i really want you to see in the economy of heaven the one matters and what matters to the lord should matter to us and you are the one now hear me say this you are the one For so much of the way that we think about church and about our Christian life, it's always somebody else. We exist for the salvation of the one, that person over there. Like the Pharisees looking at the story going, well, that's not a story about me, it's a story about that wanderer. No, you are the wanderer. You are the older brother. You are the younger brother. You are the one that God delights in, that he loves, that he died to save, that he runs out on the road for, that he meets in the middle of disenchantment. You are the one, and you cannot share the love of Christ with anyone else until you understand who you truly are. The church should be made up of ones who are sharing the love of Jesus with the ones. If you do not understand your own desperate need for Jesus, your own sinful nature, your own broken heart, that God came out to you in his glory and his goodness and he rescued you and saved you. You cannot take the gospel into the world until you recognize you are the one that God loves, that he just died for, and that he cares about in the middle of your sinful, wandering, garbage-filled life or in the middle of your angry, disenchanted, passionless church existence or anywhere on that spectrum in between. You are the one. God's grace is not for somebody else. It's for you. And as the church, so often our look is past ourselves to everybody else. Past our own sin to everybody else's sin. 
past our own need to everybody else's need. Man, I really wish they would control their kids. Man, I really wish they would do this. Man, I really wish they would ask forgiveness. Man, I really wish they wouldn't come here. Whatever it is, we look past ourselves. The church is most beautiful, most beautiful when it recognizes that it is a bunch of people that have been saved, that want to see other people saved. That is when the church is most beautiful. When the church recognizes that they are a bunch of ones that have been saved to tell other ones about Jesus. Not because they figured it out, but because the God of the universe ran out to them on the road somewhere or outside the house and said, I love you. And it changes the game. As a church, as we grow in whatever form and fashion we grow in, I never want us to ever lose sight of the fact that we are just a bunch of ones used by God to tell a bunch of ones about the Jesus that saved us. And we labor for 19 more years and one person comes to know Christ. None of it, right? None of it would have been failure. It would have been worth every breath and every minute and every labor. And there would be rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one heart that we loved and cared for. There's a million hearts. It doesn't even change the equation. A bunch of ones loving the ones that God has brought into our lives. If we cease to become that, we cease to be the church. What we've seen is that we exist for the glory of the one true God, for the nurture of the one universal church, and for the salvation of the one of which you are and which I am and which they are through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything else is on the periphery. But if we could grasp those truths, that's the church I want to be a part of. And that's the church I believe God is calling us to. As we close our time in worship, what I want to ask yourself is, God, do I fully believe that I am the one that you loved, that you cared about, Maybe you're wandering, maybe you're mad, maybe you have a passionless heart in life, maybe you're in steep in the middle of whatever sin. God loves you, and he has come for you. He wants to redeem your brokenness so that you can tell your story of brokenness to broken people, so that God may use you and me to share his grace for the salvation of the one through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that this is the call of the church. To be a bunch of ones that have been saved by the one true God so that we can go tell the world that they are loved, that they are worth it, no matter where they stand or where they're from. Every one of us desperately in need of Jesus, every one of us broken, every one of us empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell a story of redemption to anyone who will listen. A bunch of ones saved by the one to tell a bunch of ones. It's amazing. I love the way that you work. Lord, I pray that you would take our time and would close our time in worship. You would knit our hearts together. That as a community, we would be able to come together and say, God, be glorified.
Let's stand together and close our time in worship, proclaiming who we feel called to be, but more importantly, who Jesus is. Thank you.